0: For 41 years, I honored my oath to President Theodore Roosevelt and his bodyguard to conceal the events of November 15th and November 17th, 1906. On each of those days, I agreed to a conspiracy of silence. Last year, that bodyguard died and T.R. is long dead. Before I follow them to the grave, I will disclose the perils we faced during the president's historic trip to Panama to clarify the record and to unburden myself. Again, I imagined a number of assassins going after Theodore Roosevelt. And I also asked, well, if that was true, why didn't we know about it?
1: And welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful and today I am thrilled to be joined by Marley Wasserman, author of the novel Path of Peril.
0: So I have everything happening here. It's sort of like a whirlwind of interactions between different kinds of people.
1: Marley Wasserman writes historical crime fiction. Her debut novel, The Murderess Must Die, tells the story of Martha Place, the first woman to die in the electric chair. Her second novel, Path of Peril, is a twisty tale of multiple assassins scheming to murder Teddy Roosevelt in 1906 at the Panama Canal. Her forthcoming novel, Inferno on Fifth, is based on the true story of a deadly hotel fire in Manhattan in 1899. When she's not writing, Marley sketches and travels. Topping her bucket list is a visit to each of the United States' 62 national parks. She has visited 42 to date. Today, I'll be talking with Marley about her novel, Path of Peril. Well, I was surprised to learn that President Roosevelt was the first president to travel abroad while in office. It's so common now. Of course, travel was different back then. Can you set this up for us? Tell us a little bit about why he traveled abroad and just what the historical context of your novel is?
0: Yes. Well, exactly what caught your attention is what caught my attention. Uh, I learned that fact from the History Channel when I was watching it one day while I was on my treadmill, and I was shocked. I'd never thought about that before. You know, I grew up in the era of presidential visits when uh, um, Nixon went to Caracas, although he was technically vice president at the time, and his car was stoned, and uh, um, Reagan went to Berlin and had the Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech, and Kennedy went to Berlin and had the I am a Berliner speech. So I just sort of took I took presidential visits for granted. But then when I started to do the research that all historical novelists do, I realized that presidential visits were very new for three reasons. The first being uh, that transportation took so long. I mean, if a president in the early 1800s wanted to go to Europe, he, and it was always he of course, would probably be gone for two months at least. Then there was the problem of communication. A president on a ship in the 1820s or 1830s uh, would have, really would not be able to communicate uh, with the United States. Uh, And then there was the third reason that was more, um, well, less rational. And that is that people somehow considered it unpatriotic for a president to leave U.S. ground. Um, I'm not sure why that was the case. Uh, There was probably a greater sense of isolationism, a greater, even greater fear of the unknown than there is now. So my imagination sort of went into overdrive when I heard that this trip that Teddy Roosevelt took in 1906 was the first trip ever uh, by a sitting president. Now, why did he go? Well, again, a couple of reasons. He loved naval power. And so the idea of sailing there on a battleship uh, really appealed to him. And also, he loved technology and the idea of the Panama Canal, uh, was a huge attraction. He thought that if he could go there and check on the progress in digging the canal and report back to Congress about it, he might be able to ensure continued financial support for the canal. Uh, and also, he believed in the canal just because it would get ships around the world, much faster than had been the case before. And he was much more of an internationalist, as I hinted at before, than some of the presidents before him had been.
1: And just out of curiosity, did he have to gain congressional approval to make that trip? And what kind of obstacles did he face in in being able to do that? Or could he just wave a wand and say, I'm going?
0: He just waved a wand. Uh, he uh, he was a president who liked to flex his muscles. Uh, and so he could do that with no trouble. But the news reporters, the newspaper reporters who followed him, considered this a momentous trip because it was so unusual. He The fact that he was leaving the United States, the fact that he was going to be gone for two or three weeks, Uh, And the fact that he was going to a country that most people had never heard of, uh, all of those things made it into a big, dramatic episode. The kind of thing that would be covered today in a 24-hour news cycle was covered then by, you know, what we loosely call yellow journalism. Uh, It was big news. It was on the front page of every paper that every major paper I checked. Uh, for a long, for every day of his four- or five-day trip to the canal.
1: Well, it certainly was big news, but you write that Path of Peril imagines what newspapers feared to report. Without giving away too much about the novel, what is it that, that newspapers feared to report? So in
0: 1906, um, we have to remember that there had already been three presidential assassinations. Um, Lincoln, Garfield, and just five years before the trip, uh, McKinley. Uh, so that was in everyone's mind. In addition to that, there was this um, a, a fear of anarchism, a fear of anarchists. And you have to go back and look at a little bit American history, but even more so European history to understand this uh, almost out-of-control fear. It is true that a number of anarchists, and, and it is also true that most of them were Italian, had killed a number of members of European royalty in the decade or two before Roosevelt's trip. And it's also true that the assassin killed, um, who killed McKinley was probably an anarchist as well. But the fear was sort of out of control and maybe out of proportion to the actual threat. Nonetheless, um, the agents who were guarding Roosevelt, Roosevelt's wife, and a lot of Roosevelt's friends in Washington feared that he could be assassinated at any time. And that fear grew when they realized that he would uh, be outside U.S. territory. not technically outside U.S. territory, but certainly outside the mainland. Uh, So uh, there was a huge fear, but it wasn't reported. It was sort of an underground fear. The armed services were aware of it, and uh, they checked every ship arriving in Panama City and the other big city in Panama, which was Colon, they checked every ship the passenger manifest to see if anyone who was sort of on their list of suspects traveled from either Europe or the United States around the time of Roosevelt's visit to Panama. Um, So in my imagination, um, I knew that this was happening, but I also... Guessed that there were that the some of these threats had actually extended to be more serious, and so, uh, again, I imagined a number of assassins going after Theodore Roosevelt. And I also asked, Well, if that was true, why didn't we know about it? And I think that there were some very good reasons that if there were indeed these attempts on. Roosevelt's life that he would want to keep it hush hush hush. And so that's what I kind of write about those are the tales that I spin in this in this book.
1: Well this all sounds pretty surreal. Were you surprised while doing your research just how how deep all this went? And also was it fun? Was it fun to do your research for this novel? <laughs>
0: Well, uh, I think almost any novelist who does, who writes historical fiction will tell you that research is more fun than writing. Writing is the hard part. Research is the fun part. You can go down rabbit holes and stay in that hole just as long as you like. Um, so, yes, I was surprised at a number of things, uh, mainly what I was surprised about. And this is sort of the theme that underlies the whole novel. What I was surprised about was that Panama served as a magnet uh, for people from all over the world, from all classes, all colors of people, all professions. They were all attracted for various reasons to the promise of Panama and the Panama Canal. Now, many of them came there for good reasons. They came there for better wages. uh, For more opportunities. But those who read my novel will see that I also believe that some people came there to hide, to hide, you know, sordid lives or crimes or um, unfortunate circumstances that they were running away from. So it's kind of like a microcosm of the world of everything that we see when we look around us. And these people who came in 1906, or in some cases the years before, had to learn to, get around, uh, to deal with each other uh, so that I have middle-class families who have never had servants, who suddenly have the opportunity to hire servants and have to figure out how to relate to those servants. I have immigrants from Barbados and Jamaica, who um, have never worked in this sort of environment before where they are both discriminated against and have opportunities at the same time. I have officials, many of whom are, what, by our standards, bigots. I have other officials who are um, much more progressive in their attitudes toward a variety of people. So I have everything happening here. It's sort of like a whirlwind of interactions between different kinds of people. And I think that's what surprised me the most. And that's a, a theme that I wanted to convey at the same time that I write about threats to Roosevelt.
1: Let's talk more about one of those key people and that would be Maurice Latta. Who was he and um how does he fit into this story?
0: So Maurice Latta was another one of my surprises um and if I were to do this again I would probably start a series about Maurice Latta. He is a true historic figure. Uh, but certainly not a household name. He started out as the lowest of the low in the president's office in the White House. He was basically a clerk. And little by little, he was promoted, uh, and he had a huge amount of longevity. So let's step ahead for a minute outside of my novel. He was still working for presidents under the Truman administration. So he sat there in the White House secretary's office year after year, administration to administration. And although we know very little about him from the historic record, what I've surmised is that he was a kind of a weak, insecure person. He never went to college uh, and he did not come from a wealthy background. But sitting there in the White House, he was surrounded by people who were. Um, who were much more privileged than he was. So we always had a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Uh, I have him going to Panama, and that is a factual event. He did accompany the president. It was the first, not only was it TR's first trip outside the country as president, but it was also Maurice Lata's first trip ever, Um, outside probably the eastern seaboard. So this was a big opportunity for him. He uh, was in charge of the president's schedule. He introduced the president to people. He had lists of guests who were coming. And he controlled, to some extent, he controlled the press, the people who were uh, authorized to follow the president and to write about him. A lot of the novel is about Lada and about his own personal journey over just these four or five days as he goes from meek assistant secretary to someone who really finds himself in the center of the action, a very dramatic action of a presidential visit abroad.
1: I'm curious about... Recreating historical figures like Theodore Roosevelt and Maurice Lotta. Can you talk about how you got to know these people and then, just as a craft of fiction, how you managed to recreate them on the page?
0: Yes. So, as you know, there have been so many volumes written about Theodore Roosevelt that I made a decision to have him sort of in the shadows. Uh, I He is the center of some of the action toward the end of the book, the middle and the end, but the book is really not about Theodore Roosevelt, and in part for the reasons that you mentioned, that there was so much about him, I wasn't sure where I would begin, but also because I didn't want to sort of do duplicate the great white man idea of history with Roosevelt at the center. I was more interested in many ways in Maurice Lada, again, for the reason you hint at, that so little was known about Lada. And when you write historical fiction, for me, the real joy is finding those silences, those gaps, and then trying to imagine what someone was thinking, what someone would be doing in the sort of, you know, uh, I think of it as the mortar that holds the bricks together or the the muscle that connects the ribs. It's it's the part of history that we don't know, that we wish we knew and that we probably will never know for sure. So I was I like to think I was able to get into Maurice Lata's head. I mean, who among us hasn't felt insecure, right? But I would never dare to try to get into Theodore Roosevelt's head.
1: Not to. Well, I know I'm steering the conversation back to Roosevelt, even though, as you you mentioned, the story is not necessarily about him. But I'm curious about this time period in history and what Roosevelt represents. And especially, as you mentioned, him being the great white man in history, at the time the U.S. Uh, was was it becoming an imperialist power and they were imperializing much of Latin America. Did you try to confront any of that? And, and what are your views looking back on his role, on the United States' role in, in that region as far as colonialism is concerned?
0: Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. He was at the center of an effort to really put the U.S. presence into Latin America in a way that was in large part harmful in the long run. Uh, the United States uh, became sort of a superpower, and certainly in Panama, they took over the country. Um, Panama, Panama had been controlled by Colombia, up until 1903 and then in large part because of President Roosevelt's desire to build the Panama Canal, uh, they made a, the the Americans made a deal with the, it's a complicated deal, so I won't go into too many details, but they made a complicated deal with both Colombia and with the French who had attempted to build the canal before and left a lot of machinery. Um, to, to buy rights to the canal for a ridiculously low amount of money. And that gave them control of the Can- Panama Canal Zone, which is a kind of cordon that goes uh, across Panama. Uh, most of this was not good for Panama. Some of it was, though. And the part that was good relates in many cases to technology, technology. Uh, Roosevelt is known, as you say, for being sort of an expansionist, um, wanting the US to control more and more uh, of the Americas, and who knows what he would have done if he'd gotten the third term that he wanted to. But beyond that, he was someone who was just very curious. On the positive side, we know he was curious about the environment. He's often credited with starting the national park system. He was also very curious about technology. Technology was one of his hobbies. And so his trip to the Panama Canal had many aspects to it, including just checking out the technology, all this new machinery that had been invented to dig the canal. And there is an iconic photograph, which, because my book isn't illustrated, I I couldn't put in the book. But anyone checking the Library of Congress uh, photographic archives can find this photograph. It's of uh, Teddy Roosevelt climbing into uh, what's known as a Buerarus steam shovel, which was this enormous contraption that dug dirt. And while he was there, I think on his second to last day ex, uh, examining the uh, progress along the canal, he stopped the uh, operator who was running this, I'll call it a steam shovel. And he Teddy Roosevelt wearing these this white linen suit jumped into the mud and climbed up on this steam shovel. And the photographers all, you know, took pictures that were run in uh, in all of the papers at the time. This particular picture has a sort of iconic stature that, um, you know, uh, pictures of, uh, I, I'm not going to come up with the names, but the, the picture of the soldiers holding the flag during the Korean War the picture of the young um, woman uh, during the Vietnam War running from um, burning fire, all those pictures that we know that made such a difference in American history, the picture of Roosevelt is one of those, probably the first, that takes on this iconic uh, importance. So Roosevelt came there, he made his mark, he did get Congress to continue funding, and the Panama Canal, by some standards, uh, was one of the great technological uh, accomplishments of the uh, early 20th century.
1: Well, it's, yeah, that's fascinating, and it leads me to wonder, what, what would Roosevelt think of today's technology?
0: <laughs> he was a man of great curiosity uh, and a man who could, um, he could handle unlimited amounts of detail. So I suspect whatever you threw at him, he would absorb and want to go even beyond what he could learn easily. Uh, he wasn't all, you know, sunshine, Uh there were some aspects of his personality that I refer to in sort of a subplot of the book um, that were not so admirable, but, but his curiosity, I would put high up on the list of his attributes.
1: Uh, let me ask you, what led you away from working at a university press in academia, publishing nonfiction books to historical crime fiction?
0: <laughs> that's a great question. So for many decades, I was a university press publisher, uh, reading countless books in the social sciences, particularly anthropology, history, sociology, and running those running that press where I worked as a business. Uh, I like many of us, um, when I read something I always wonder, could I do this good a job? Could I do a better job? Uh, Now, I was reading at the time nonfiction, almost exclusively. But the attraction to me of historic uh, fiction is that you have to do all of the research that the historians do, and then you can layer that with your own views, your own imagination, your own creativity. So it's really a wonderful mixture of uh, everything that I found um, appealing. Uh, And I continue to think that I would be very hamstrung if I just had to write pure social science without sort of inventing. Um, I know... Colin, you're interested in an alternative history. And to some extent, hist- almost all historic fiction has elements of alternative fiction because we can never claim that what we write about actually happened, but we are trying to imagine what might have happened, what could have happened.
1: And what has, you know, the, you, it sounds like you definitely enjoy the writing process and having a little creative freedom. But beyond writing, what has publishing been like for you in publishing fiction novels? Um, you started with The Murderous Must Die, and now you're on The Path of Peril. And it looks like you've got another one forthcoming, Inferno on Fifth. Um, are you enjoying that process? Are you learning a lot?
0: I love writing historic fiction. Um, it's I can't imagine doing anything that's as rewarding in terms of what you... As I said, both what you learn and what you can create, I think for all of us who write historic fiction now, the challenge is, of course, first research and then writing. But the third challenge is marketing. Um, The good news is that everyone seems to love historic fiction. The bad news is there's a lot of it. Uh, And so we, you know, we strive to make sure that we're writing not only books that appeal to us, but books that will appeal to others as well. Uh, when I started in academic publishing, there were clear routes to promote books. There was a lot of print media, uh, and those print the print media served two functions: both reviews and ads. Now, um, for both historic, for both fiction and nonfiction, there's really no, there's no forum for ads in print media. So we're all trying to learn how to get the word out, how to disseminate the word, how to differentiate ourselves from from others. I have um, concentrated on the years around the year 1900. So my first book was uh, set in um, 1897. The book we're talking about now, 1906. The book that um, I've just completed and sent into my publisher. My third book is set in 1899. Uh, And I have ideas for other books that are set um, not quite as close to the year 1900, but within a couple of decades of that year. I think that for American history, that's just a fascinating time. I'm fascinated by the changes. We all think now with technology is the fastest change we've ever seen. But um, if you think back on the late 19th century, There was a lot of rapid change going on then, a lot of things that people needed to adapt to, and that adds to the potential conflict. Uh, As you know, conflict should underlie everything that we write about. Conflict in its many forms underlies everyday life. And I think the changes in technology and the um, changes in transportation, which result in People from different places coming together, not only in Panama, but in uh, places in the United States, can really fuel a lot of uh, good dramatic stories.
1: Yeah, it's definitely easy to forget things as we live in our present moment and suffer maybe from recency bias. But as you know, as I know, when you research history, and you find out that this is not the first thing this has happened or that has happened. And so you make some very <laughs> good points
0: there. Yes.
1: I want to ask you about your travel to 42 of 62 national parks. <laughs> I am also a lover of national parks. I This inspires me to actually count. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to. I must be over 30. Uh, so what is it about the national parks that you love so much? And what are some that uh, you really need to get to yet?
0: Well, I'd like to say that Teddy Roosevelt inspired me to visit them, but that's not quite the the case. Ever since I realized that I was a city girl, I grew up in uh, a Chicago suburb, and then I lived in New Jersey and a New York suburb, I realized that my life was ridiculously confined in that way. And that one of the best ways to get out and to to change my perspective was to... uh, visit national parks. Now, why do I collect them? Well, um, anyone who knows something about collecting can understand that it kind of shapes what you do. Um, That's one of the reasons I love historic fiction, by the way, because you start with the skeleton of history and then you add to it. So I begin with the 60, I think there are now 63 national parks, and that sort of forms an itinerary for me. Uh, I don't like to use the word collecting too much because that suggests that I just put my toe in each park and, you know, make a check mark. And I, I like to spend enough time in the park so that I actually have a sense of it uh, in the perfect world. I hike in it. Um, at least I, you know, do some walking around and and get a sense of it. Uh, a year ago, I went to a park in your state. I visited Voyagers uh, in the far north part of uh, Minnesota, and I'll soon be going to um, Isle Royale and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, And I can tie this to my book on Panama because uh, my wanderlust included visiting Panama. Um, I wish I'd been there more than once. When I went to Panama, I just had the sort of... um, glimmer of the book in my head. And so I didn't research everything there that I would have if I had gone back after finishing a draft of the book. Uh, but I love to travel. I love national parks. I love foreign countries uh, almost as much as Teddy Roosevelt did. And some someday I hope to complete my uh, national park uh, uh, journeys, although that will in- involve my somehow finding a way to get to American Samoa. <laughs> There's a national park there, too.
1: Wow. Well, I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I've been to Voyagers. I'm I, sorry to say I haven't been to Isle Royale yet, but uh, it's on my list.
0: They're all special places in different ways.
1: So can you tell us more about your fourth, your next novel?
0: Yes. So Inferno on 5th, it has somewhat fewer characters than my Panama book. My Panama book has a lot of characters because I was so fascinated with people coming from all around the world and trying to get along with everyone else in Panama. Uh, Inferno on 5th is inspired by a true historic, I'll call it an incident, but that's not really a good word to use. There was a horrible fire in Midtown Manhattan in 1899. The Windsor Hotel, it was a luxurious hotel, um, often frequented by tycoons. The Windsor Hotel burned to the ground in about two hours on St. Patrick's Day in 1899. Uh, A lot of the people who died, probably close to 100 people died. A lot of them were women uh, who jumped from the upper stories because the code was not, the fire code was not very good. The fire escapes were not very good. The ropes they used to get down were not very good. So uh, there was a terrible death count just from people jumping. Uh, many of these people were wealthy guests, but many of them were also maids and other workers at the Windsor Hotel. The coroner's report that investigated the uh, fire ruled that it was an accident. But I ask, was it really an accident? Um, and that also took a lot of research. And it also took a lot of imagination because although we have records of the experiences of the wealthy people who are staying at the hotel, we have very few records of the service workers who are at the hotel. I had fun writing this. Um, I think it's a horrible, horrible fire, uh, one of many fires in New York at the time. Uh, And I'm hoping that people who read this come to see the decisions that people had to make in the midst of the fire and will question what they would have done under the same circumstances.
1: Well, it sounds like another fascinating read, and it's got a perfect tagline, you know, was it really an accident?
0: Right, exactly. So you'll have to read it to find out.
1: Yep. Well, Marley, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on your newest novel, Path of Peril. And um, I've had such a good time. Thank you for joining me today.
0: Great. Thank you, Colin. I enjoyed it.